Rush, 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 Christmas rush, rushing around. Many of us struggle with the blurring rush of this season. So many things seem necessary, and they all have to happen in a hurry. The journal Nursing Times had a really sobering summary about this. They wrote this. A range of factors contribute to making Christmas a rushed and potentially very stressful time of year. These include pressures of shopping, time, financial concerns, and social demands, as well as fatigue, general overindulgence, and a lack of physical exercise. Thus, the impact of Christmas can be profound and not always positive. The effects range from increased stress, family conflicts, alcohol misuse, to heightened loneliness, increasing mental health difficulties, and domestic violence. Close quote. Makes you want to burst out in a chorus of, it's the most wonderful time of the year. The, seriously, Christmas rush can be dangerous. So what should we do about it? It's a reality. It's a fact of life. What should we do about it? Most of the time, pundits and pastors say to slow down. That's the advice we're given most of the time. Just slow down. And... And there can certainly be wisdom in that. But the Gospel of Mark has a very different take. Mark actually teaches that if you want to enjoy the Christ of Christmas, you better speed up. And I don't mean in the sense of getting more hurried. We need to speed up our, our focus. We need to be ready to spot, respond to God immediately. Uh, look, look at our notes of the worship guide you got. You got a worship guide when you walked in. Open that bulletin up. Look inside there, and you'll see that the immediately, that word immediately is the operative word in Mark's gospel. Immediately is the driving word in Mark. The term appears 42 times in Mark. 42 that means that his gospel story unfolds like a breathless rush. Mark is like an action movie that never stops to rest for even a second. And anyone who wants to follow the Messiah better keep up. Youth use uh, is the term that we use that we translate immediately. The term that Mark uses we translate immediately. It can mean straight. It does in some contexts. It can mean right on time. But most often the context clarifies. When you see youth use in the Bible, it means straight away, immediately. Uh, now, youth use also suggests a priority of sequencing. This happens, and this happens, and this happens. So put it all together, and here's how Mark uses youth use. Youth use means doing the right things in the right order right away. Youth use. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. Your term that transforms for today is youth use. On the count of three, you get to say it. One, two, three. Youth use. And it means right things done in the right order straight away, right away. Okay. Matthew employs this word a few times. So do some other New Testament writers, but nobody goes cuckoo over youth use like Mark does. Other writers tell us about Christmas by describing Jesus' family and his miraculous birth, but Mark informs us by straightaway introducing us right off the very beginning of his, of his story with the person of Christ. This is so cool. Let me show you. Uh, open your Bible. We're only going to use Mark chapter 1. Go to Mark chapter 1. Um, if, if all we had, I mean this, if all we had were the youth use passages of Mark 1, it would be enough. We could know what Christmas is all about just based on these few verses we're going to read today. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Let's read about Jesus' baptism. Okay, we'll start there. Go to verse 9, Jesus' baptism. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came. Oh, actually, I want to read this from the English Standard Version. Look here. Um, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately there is our Greek term, euthyus. This is breathless. Immediately the heavens are torn open. The triune God is revealed. The detail here is remarkable and it's really significant. The spirit is visible, not, not necessarily in the form of a dove, but just something that, that is gliding down. 
Mark's using a simile here, folks. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. It's that he comes toward Jesus like one. And this is really hard for many of my friends to understand. Uh, You see, for my friends that are from Texas, descending like a dove, (laughs) that means being full of buckshot and plummeting to the earth. So for those who are dove hunters and for all the rest of us, I've got a slow motion video. We're going to turn the sound up on this. I want you to watch and listen carefully. Look at the power of this. This is a dove descending. Take a look. hear the power? Now look at the control. This stuff comes in with amazing, I mean, that's just astonishing. I know, isn't that cool? There is grace, there is beauty, there is purpose in how a dove comes in for a landing. That's what John is describing about God the Holy Spirit. And, and look, God the Father is revealed as well. His voice is heard. And that voice of God the Father with God the Spirit identifies Jesus as God the Son. As we, as we put it in your notes, Jesus is identified with the Son in triunity, in the Trinity. He is God the Son revealed in concert with the Father and the Spirit. This morning, we, we celebrated parents' dedication up here. Those parents were the focus. They were declaring their commitment to biblical parenting. But there was also an identification going on. And, and it occurred in a sort of triunity, right? Those parents were identifying with their children, right? And then when you stood up and you committed to them, there was an identification with you too as the redeemed community. It's a symbiotic work of interrelated, unique beings, the parents, the children, the congregation all together. You know, one of the reasons that this ceremony is so beautiful and that it moves us so much every time we see it is that it gives a small glimpse into the glory of the triune God, right? There's triunity there. Now, notice Mark's powerful phrase that describes the awe, the the majesty of that moment when the triune God is revealed together. He says, the heavens being torn open. Jesus' advent rips open the way to God. Now, this ties into what happened just before Jesus entered the water. Go up to uh, to verse 4 in your text. John, the baptizer, came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance. That means a changing a mind, metanoia, changing a mind, for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, to be baptized, to be baptized is to show outwardly an interchange. Okay, that's what baptism means, to show outwardly an interchange. Now, baptism also signifies identification with something. Now, it, it happens two different ways in the Scripture. Sometimes baptism is a, identifying a change of identity. This is a new person who comes. Sometimes it is identification with someone or something, okay? So, so when these crowds are coming to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, they're identifying with his message, his message of changing mind, of repentance towards sin, But then the plot thickens. John adds another message. Look at verse 7. He, John, was preaching, Someone more powerful than I will come after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit? I mean, they had to be asking in their their Jim Mora imitation, those people had to be saying, Baptize with the Spirit? Playoffs? Baptize with the Spirit? Are you kidding me? Right? I mean, this is a bigger thing than playoffs. To baptize with the Holy Spirit is something only Yahweh can do. No one but God can possibly baptize with the very Spirit of God. John is declaring that this one who follows him is God himself. And what happens immediately after that speech? Jesus is baptized by John. 
That means that Jesus identifies with John's message. He identifies as the Savior who can take away the sins of the world because he is God. He's not merely a highly regarded prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He is God. Now, immediately after that, you see what I did there? Immediately, we learn of Jesus' temptation. Go to verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus' temptation. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels began to serve him. Jesus goes through the wilderness 40 days. Now, that 40-day time span is really important in the Hebrew mind. Moses spent 40 days on the mountain in communion with God. Moses didn't need He didn't need any food or drink during that 40 days. No mortal food or drink could compare with what he was provided in the very presence of God. 40 days. Elijah traveled 40 days through the wilderness to get to Mount Oreb. And and on that journey, God provided for him miraculously. He didn't need food and water, human provision. He was provided for by God. In fact, that followed one of the most stressful, exciting, depressing days of his life, and yet God strengthened him the whole way. So now look at Jesus' wilderness journey. It's tied into Hebrew history, and it's also very important for prophecy. Jesus' wilderness journey, his temptation is important both for the prophecy about Jesus' first advent and for his promised return. Let me show you why. 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said this, The voice of one crying out, Prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight a highway for our God in the desert. The Gospel of Mark wants to make sure we understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise. So the very first words in Mark's Gospel are quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. Jesus had to go into the wilderness. It was part and parcel of what was promised about him. And even that action was intended to show that Jesus is fully God. That, that Isaiah prophecy, uh, that Isaiah chapter 40 prophecy goes on to say this. Uh, read with me, please. You take the underlying text. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 6. A voice was saying, cry out. Another voice said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Jesus is the very word of God. When he goes into the wilderness, he is connecting with Isaiah chapter 40 to show his permanence, his eternal stability. He is the word of God, but he's also fully human. And going into the wilderness is important from that perspective as well because even though he's fully human, Jesus overcomes the adversary's testing. This is a really cool theme all throughout Mark. The evil evil Satan keeps trying to unhorse the Christ. Satan throws his best punches. He even takes Scripture and twists it badly. But Jesus takes every punch and he gives it right back by using Scripture in its proper context. Jesus overcomes an incredible temptation. So later... When you're reading Mark and you get to the later parts, um, Jesus is going to send out his followers to go confront the evil one. And they're supposed to remember that Jesus overcame the, the, the evil one, Satan. And in his power, they can as well. And so can we. As the book of Hebrews says, remembering Jesus' humanity and his triumph over temptation, that gives us reason to rejoice in him and be drawn to him. Read with me. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Amen. Now, Mark takes this idea, and he writes it in very terse Romanesque uh, script. 
Mark reads more like uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars than any other New Testament writer. He's writing for a Roman audience, and he writes like a Roman. It's very short, very very Latin kind of way of writing. Look at his really short summary, his last comment about Jesus' temptation. He was with the wild animals, and angels began to serve him. Now, here's why that's such a brilliant summary. It shows amazing range. Folks, wild animals are, in Jewish thought, the lowest of the low. Angels are the highest of the high. So Jesus stretches from lowest to highest. Think of it like the range of your life and your jobs. Uh, how many of you have ever had a dirty job? Have you ever had a dirty job? It's some part of some job that was, that was dirty. All right, raise your hands if you're willing to share. What was your dirty job? We had somebody last time that was a sewer cleaner. That was, that, that was a winner. What have you got? Dirty job. Let me hear one. What was some dirty job? Yes, what do you got? Concrete what? Oh, cutting. Oh, with the big saw, the diamond tip saw. So much dust. Ugh, what else? What do you got? Clean rat and mouse cages. You win. You win. That's it. Yeah, what do you got? Church janitor. That is a holy and clean job. You're very confused. Um, my, my worst one was uh, when I was the bear trainer at the university. Uh, on occasion, the, uh, the bear pit where the bears live, the wonderful zoo area we had for them, um, all the stuff you know, that we would sweep down and wash down every day would get clogged up and you would have to go clean out the sewer drain and there would always be dead rats caught in there. That was a dirty job. It was pretty gross. Um, although in a weird way, enjoyable to get rid of dead rats. So, so think about that dirty job. Now, whatever dirty job you had, if you did it unto the Lord, it was actually a good job, wasn't it? I mean, we, we smile and we think about that. If you did it with zeal, Unto God, not as to men. Those, dirty, those are fun memories. We enjoy those dirty jobs. Raise your hand if you've ever had a really clean job. You had a nice white collar, fun jobs, really clean, really enjoyable, nothing really dirty about it. Come on, most of you should raise your hand right now. All right, yeah, that's right. Okay, you must be confused about what clean means. The, um, now think about this. A lot of you, by the way, raised the same people raised the hand for each one. And that's really intriguing because if you did those jobs with zeal, both the clean one and the dirty one, then you showed really great range right? You, you glorified God with the, the really high, wonderful job and the really low, dirty job. All right. In the same way, Jesus can associate and be productive with wild animals and with angels. He has the greatest range of any person possible. All the gospels show this. The others just do it in story. See, Matthew and Luke, they tell this story of Jesus so that you'll understand that he's in this, he's in this manger and he's got all these wild animals with him, but angels are praising him. It's the same thing. Mark just tells it like a Latin. He's just really short and he skips all that and just says, look, Jesus has incredible stretch. He, this never ends. The manger isn't the end of anything. That's what Jesus is like his whole life. He has this amazing experience. He's worshiped by heaven, and yet he associates with wild animals like us. Did you ever think about this? We are Jesus' dirty job. We're his dirty job. Aren't we glad that he does it with zeal? Now, skip down a few lines to verse 16. Go down to verse 16. And he was pass as he was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus, followed him. 
As we summarize on the right side of our notes, this is Mark's introduction to Jesus' disciples. Two big ideas leap out from this fast-paced account here. First is Jesus makes fishers for people. Simon, who's later renamed Peter, and his brother Andrew are fishermen. Same thing for James and his brother John. Now, James and John are likely really young men, probably in their early teens, maybe mid-teens. Teens. Simon and Andrew are almost certainly older. Uh, look up here. The word that's used for them, the one we translate fishermen, is a word that means um, seafarer, seafarers, not just fishermen, but anybody who goes out on the water that owns the boat. Okay, so, so these, aren't, these aren't just fishermen. They own the company. All right, so they, they, they almost certainly have to be older. Uh, not so the other pair, because Zebedee, their father, is mentioned. When the dad is mentioned in a Hebrew passage, that means that he is still in charge. So James and John are not owners. They're probably still young men. Regardless of age, regardless of station, look at the life to which Jesus calls them. He calls these fishermen to become teachers, philosophers, people who engage with people. Think about that. Now, I don't know everything about first century fishermen, but I have known many 21st century fishermen. And if those guys were anything like we are now, this choice seems odd to me. Fishermen lie. We don't smell particularly great. Fishermen care a lot more for fins than friends. We care more about water currents than we do social currents. And, and fishermen have a tendency to exaggerate. It was this big, right? They love to tell tall tales. So, of course, we're all wondering in the imitation that I was asked by a child to do for this week in Yogi Bear. Doesn't it seem counterproductive to choose fishermen for his first followers? No, Yogi. It doesn't. It barely shows Jesus' reach, right? Think about this. Jesus can take fishermen, younger or older owners or workers, and craft them into a force to change the world forever. He did the same thing with Matthew, who was a tax collector, for goodness sake. He took Saul, hater and abuser of God's churches, and turned him into Paul, the most productive church planter ever in human history. He can do the same for you, and he does for me. Jesus calls us to believe in him and to follow him. And, and the wise respond positively to that call because Jesus is worth following immediately. That's the second big idea here. Immediately he calls, immediately they go. Now, there's a lot more backstory involved here. Actually, Jesus had already met Andrew and Peter earlier. They'd had a conversation, but Mark skips all that, and he does it on purpose because he's emphasizing the second big idea, that once Jesus actually laid out the opportunity to follow him, they jump at the chance. Stephen Curtis Chapman captured beautifully, I think, the immediacy of this text, a poem he wrote a number of years ago called For the Sake of the Call. Nobody stood and applauded them, so they knew from the start this road would not lead to fame. All they really knew for sure was Jesus had called them. He said, come, follow me, and they came. With reckless abandon, they came. Empty nets lying there at the water's edge told a story that few could believe and none could explain. How some crazy fishermen agreed to go where Jesus led with no thought to what they would gain. For Jesus had called them by name and they answered, we will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. All God's people said, amen. A disciple is a follower. That's what the word means. Disciple means follower. If you are a believer in Jesus, that's great. Don't stop there. Become a follower. He has called you by name. 
Respond to the call. Drop your net of self-reliance. Repent. Change your mind about Jesus, the rabbi who fishes for people and makes other people fishers for men. Jesus is worth following immediately. Pick up your cross and follow him now and forever. Amen? Next, Mark introduces us to Jesus' power. Look at verse 21. Uh, Go to verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching, because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Right away, that's youth use, Jesus shows his power immediately upon entering Capernaum, and, and that displays that Jesus has, the first thing he does is show that he has authority over Scripture. As we saw earlier, Jesus is the Word of God, right? What does the Word of God do? The Word of God reveals God's nature, will, and ways to us. Reveals God's nature, will, and ways to us. That's what the Word does. And Jesus does that as well as the the written Scripture. All the rest of us in human history are under the Bible's authority, but Jesus, being the very Word of God, is over the Bible's authority. Uh, Better put, He is the embodiment of the Bible's authority. This short little Christmas series we've been doing, we've looked at a few words in Mark and John, terms that transform lives. These are words that John and Mark employ more often and more profoundly than other Greek writers. Today we spent our time on youth use in Mark. On Christmas Eve, we're going to examine one remarkable term in John, but we would be remiss if we didn't note what John has to say about this. John is all over this idea that Jesus has authority over Scripture because he is God. Read with me, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Only Jesus has authority over the Word. Now, there are always, there are always fools who set themselves up as humans over the authority of Scripture. But I've lived long enough that I'll tell you it always works out the same way. Those people who set themselves up as authority over Scripture to change it and take parts out and do what they want to with it, their stories always end with Scripture exalted and the fool exposed. Now, let's read Mark 1, 23 through 28, the very next verses, 23. Just then... A man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, that's, that's how I picture him speaking. Do you know? um, Jesus said, Be quiet. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. Then they were amazed. And they began to argue with one another, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. News about him then spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Jesus has authority over the immaterial. Just then is Mark's key term, youth use. This is a really frightening scenario that developed here. The very next thing in order, youth use, is for Jesus to show that he has power over the immaterial world. He has power over Scripture. He has power over the immaterial world, even unclean spirits. Can you imagine the fright? Here they are in the middle of worship. Some poor dude just speaks up with a demonic voice, Jesus, Nazareth. By the way, quick side note, can I? A friend of mine knew that I was going to be teaching this passage with the demonic voice this week, and so he sent me this picture. Uh, It says, when you accidentally summon a demon while trying to pronounce Ikea furniture names. (laughs) I thought that was good. 
and then and then he and I got to talking about the voice, and and I told him that that I thought you know it was probably Jesus Nazarene, and he said why why did it have to be a voice like that? And then he made a pretty good case. He said he thought it was much more likely something like this Jesus Nazarene, because <laughs> that's demonic. Anyway, sorry, off the sidetrack. Regardless of the sound. The Bible states that demonization is a reality. But demonization is not something that human beings usually see. It, it's God in his armor that conquers unclean, immaterial spirits. This must have been terrifying for the people there, but not to Jesus the Messiah. Let me give you a parallel from a recent experience at our church. I think this will help you understand what they were feeling that day in that synagogue. Um, the other day, not too long ago, a man came into church, came in very late, and he uh, and he sp- he sat down by himself in a in a in a back seat, and he uh, and he began to he came in very late during the sermon, and he began to spend his time on a tablet looking up information about our pastors, our wonderful secret service team here, the uh, the church security team that that aren't seen, but boy, they do brilliant work. We're so grateful. They flagged him as they do. They flagged him as a potential threat. So they kept an eye on this guy. He had on, by the way, a great big overcoat, covered up all kinds of stuff, and a big briefcase with him. Kind of strange for somebody coming to church. They were especially alarmed when immediately after the service, he came running down the aisle toward me. And, uh, and he came right up here, and I saw him. Turns out it was an old friend of mine from the Middle East. It was an old friend of mine from, uh, from the far eastern part of the Middle East, and he had come, and he had the briefcase because he brought me stuff, and we were sharing stuff. It was really nice. But I looked behind him and realized he had no idea how close to death he came uh, <laughs> as these two very large men were behind him making sure everything was okay. Now, when I share that story, probably for most of us, there are, there are some emotions churning through you because you don't know about those things, and so you hear that, and you feel a strange combination of discomfort, relief, and gratitude, Right? There's some discomfort about that. There's some relief. There's some gratitude. I think that's very much what they likely felt in that synagogue. This is what they experienced when one of the congregants interrupted the scripture reading with, Jesus, Nazarene! And Jesus deals with it. He, he, he ends the demonization immediately, of course. And people are utterly flummoxed at his power. Word spreads that this Jesus has authority even over immaterial spirits. Look at what happens next. Verse 29. Verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him, Jesus, about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. Jesus has authority over internal illness. The English translators get tired of euthus, so they render the first word of this paragraph as soon as, and in verse 30, euthus gets translated as at once. And that's fine, but we need to know the pace here is purposeful. Things are moving so fast for these disciples, just like modern people at Christmas, but nothing is too fast for Jesus. He immediately heals Simon's mother-in-law. She's sick. She's so sick, they tell Jesus about it straight away. Her illness is internal. It's unknown. It's febrile, but Jesus makes her well. The implication here is that if you want to follow Jesus, you better open your eyes. You better speed up your perception. Following Jesus obviously means doing the right things in the right order right away. Okay, slide down. Last place we're going to go, into the chapter, or near the end of the chapter, verse 40. Go to verse 40. Then a man with a serious skin disease came to him and on his knees begged him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. He touched him. Moses' law forbade that. You were not allowed to touch someone who was externally ill and unclean. 
And that's, and that's fine. That was a fine law for Israel. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. He is the word of God. He's an authority over the scripture. And as God, he touches him. It's amazing. Right there, it's amazing. Then what happens next? Immediately, the disease left him and he was healed. Jesus has authority over external illness as well. Compassionately, he touches even the externally unclean, and he heals immediately, of course. And before you ask, yes, the Lord does still heal today. He does so through medical personnel, and he does so via miracles. He doesn't always heal. Sometimes his will is different, but he can heal, and I have personally experienced it. But whether he does so or not during this short life is, quite frankly, not the point. The point is Jesus is the authority. He has power over himself and the written words of God. He has authority over the immaterial world. He rules over the physical world, both the unseen and the seen. So what's the right response to this Jesus? If this were an infomercial, this is the point at which the announcer says, rush out, right now, rush, rush. And we do rush out, but not to buy anything else. The only rush is to follow Jesus. Look at who he is. He's the person of Christmas. He's the Savior. Euthyus tells us he's the Savior who is both God and human. Consider what he does. He touches with the power of Christmas. What's the power of Christmas? It's Scripture and it's healing. That's what Jesus has risen with healing in his wings. And that takes us to the point of Christmas. The whole point of Christmas is in Mark chapter 1. To follow Jesus and fish for people. Follow Jesus and fish for people. All God's people said... Let's respond in prayer to that. Pray with me, please. Lord, I pray for anyone who is studying with us today that is not a believer in Jesus, that you will draw them to you right now. Listen, friend. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He is exactly who Isaiah claimed him to be, the one who suffers for us. He's exactly... What John said as he saw him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you need to repent. You have sinned. So do I. We are sinners. Anyone who says otherwise is lying and probably selling something. But God loves us so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. He paid on the Roman cross the price for your sin and he rose from the dead so that you could believe on him for life. Trust him right now. If you've never believed on Jesus, immediately, now is the time. Trust Jesus. There's no magic formula. Just talk to God. Just tell him, I receive Jesus. I, I trust Jesus as my life savior. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Everybody else is praying. Raise your hand and look up at me. Good. Amen. Father, I pray for all of these believers here, new and experienced. And I ask you to change us and bless us. Lord, I, I hate to say this, but the reality is we don't follow particularly well, at least not much of the time. There is an immediacy to our lives, but it's... Um, it's not always brought under your aegis. It's not, always, it's not always about following you. And it's not even really bad things much of the time. It's good things. But we don't, we don't take them captive and we don't make them subject to following you. And so we miss out on all the blessing. 
I mean, it's just so sad. Father, I pray you'll break us and change us and make us into followers of Jesus. You've called us by name. Let us abandon it all for the sake of the call. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.